0: This is a WTOP original podcast.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Vine Guy. And this episode, I have the delightful pleasure of interviewing an old acquaintance alex gamble now in the late 1980s while working for his family's real estate and parking business in washington dc alex received a life-changing case of wine as a gift it wasn't just wine that was uncorked but opportunity in 1993 he and his family moved to france and over the next 26 years after his family relocated to new england gamble straddled the atlantic from boston to burgundy while creating Domaine Alex Gamble, a boutique winery that included some of France's greatest vineyard. A talented and persistent businessman in a community steeped in tradition, Gamble defeated the odds by buying some of the most coveted French vines and creating a successful brand that was eventually sold to one of the largest winemakers in the region. Today, Alex spends his time between Idaho and Wyoming in the Teton Mountains, where he is a ski host at the Jackson Hole Mountain Resort an avid hiker, and a grandfather. He is passionate about wine as he is about the community development. He is also the benefactor and chairman of the Diana D. Williams Freestyle Fund, a charitable foundation to benefit the development and advancement of promising mogul skiers to the U.S. Olympic and World Cup level. Wow. But that is not why I have Alex Gamble here today. I have Alex here because He recently wrote a wonderful book called Climbing the Vines in Burgundy. Now, let me, before I I, I get into this with you, Alex, I just have to read a little blurb about uh, what somebody has written about your book, which, by the way, is fantastic. Here's the blurb. Part Moneyball, part Kitchen Confidential, with a splash of Julia Child, climbing the vineyards is a sensory experience that you won't soon forget. It's also a touching family memoir and an accessible, incredibly detailed look at the world of gastronomy and etiology. Told in a uniquely American voice, Gamble's book is populated with fascinating characters, stunning locales, and delectable descriptions of meals and glass after glass after glass of wine. Alex's unique American tone makes for a compelling read as he tries to meld his artistic side with his family obligations and business acumen. Wow, that is a great review, Alex. Welcome, thank you, friend, to the podcast. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a little
0: embarrassed, but thank you very much.
1: <laughs> you can be embarrassed. It's awesome. It's a great book, by the way. Thank you. I couldn't you. put it down. I mean, it, I mean, I only got it sent to me last week, and I opened it up, and I started skimming through it. I was like, no, I got to read this. And Alex, it's fantastic. You have a wonderful voice that comes through loud and clear in this book. Uh, And it's just a pleasure to read. I recommend it to everybody who's listening. Again, it's called Climbing the Vines in Burgundy, Alex Gamble. But I have to start the podcast by asking just one thing that, I, you know, because I I have your wines, Alex. I mean, I know it's been a little while, but those wines last. And I've got some of your wines going back to the early 2000s. So I've got to ask, do you kind of miss making wine in Burgundy? I miss making
0: the wine and my friends and my team and all the characters uh, that were part of that. But I don't miss the stress or especially the financial stress because, you know, people have this, you know, I, I, I think in one of the chapters I talk about, everybody wants to do harvest or wants to get into the wine business, but um, it's a, it's a big little business, especially in Burgundy, very complex a lot of money um, flowing through for small business. Um, and, you know, we're f- high-end farmers. And, but, you know, I experienced three years in 12, 13, and 14 of, of hail. In 2016, I lost 50% of my crop to um, uh, to, to uh, frost. And that I don't miss. Don't miss that at all.
1: Well, okay, so you mentioned burgundy. And I'm, I'm going to, you know, touch on this a little bit, but Americans are kind of considered interlopers in Burgundy. I mean, there's, a, to the best of my knowledge, there were only three expats there making wine. And how did you do it? I mean, you know, it's it's not easy. I, I, you and I have a mutual friend who tried to stick their toe in champagne and and, you know, that didn't go anywhere. As, as you might recall so how did you do it, it how did you break into a very insular community in burgundy
0: uh first off, i think we have to say it was 30 years ago i got there um and we were the only americans there and we had an eight and ten year my wife and i had an eight and ten year old in tow and also, I was fortunate that I was working with Becky Wasserman, a very respected and led, now legendary. She passed away a year or so ago. Um, exporter who discovered some wonderful winemakers uh, in the kind of late seventies, early eighties. So I went over and I was working, you know, in an established. Business and also got over there in my mid 30s. We basically all of these baby boomers um, were taking over from their parents uh, in family businesses. And I had a certain, um, I had a real appreciation for family businesses. And then I always joke and say the secret weapon were my kids because they were in, in uh, the local schools and so many of their friends' parents were winemakers. So between Christmas and Easter and end of the year school barbecues, marriages, funerals, um, birthday parties, we became part of the community. And, um, And I got to basically taste and drink and hang out with some of the best winemakers in the world. And it was from them that I learned um, how to taste wine, um, how to basically understand how it's made. And then by pure dumb luck, I could remember what I could taste. So um, it was all these factors at once. I didn't go in expecting it. I hoped something like this would happen, but it was um, more more good luck than anything else.
1: So, wait, it wasn't your plan to... Go to Burgundy, buy a vineyard and become one of the dominant or I should say probably one of the most preeminent uh, winemakers in Burgundy at the time, and particularly being as an American. I mean, that's pretty, you know, pretty heady stuff.
0: Well, th- thank you for saying that. No, I mean, I went over, I mean, my wife and I, we both you know, I, I'd always driven between the lines and had been you know, a, a good son and doing what was right and working for the family business and you know, got married young, had kids young. And my wife and I said we want to go over, and have an adventure as a family, in in something that had become my um, uh, avocation. Um, and I think in our back of the back of our minds, we hoped that uh, we'd stayed long. We said maybe we'll stay a year. We come home in a year. There's no downside. We've made a lot of friends. The kids are speaking French, um, and we can go out in the market and like every year I can go back and buy wine for myself. And the other the that was the worst case, and then. We thought maybe if the kids were happy and it works out and we like working with becky um it would be longer so that's what happened and i worked with becky for three years and my wife and i made the decision to come back to the states because we wanted the kids to relearn english and go to u.s high schools so that's when i went to the wine school and honestly when i started the wine school i thought well maybe i'll make wine i wasn't really sure if I was going to make wine or be an importer or have my own retail operation, but I knew I would learn a lot and get meeting some, some more young make winemaker, potential winemakers. So it was a way to, it was kind of a transition. And then all of a sudden I go, yeah, I think I can do this. And um, you know, in in that winter of 97, I put together a business plan to create a really small boutique winery, which at the time no one had done and um, went out that, that next fall buying in grapes pretty much it was it was kind of um um but it was and it was also when you start when i, when I decided to start a business and i know, mean, i'm very um i'm very persistent uh and in, and i you know and i don't give up and you know i once i got my f- foot in this thing i said i'm going to make this thing work one way or the other
1: so you mentioned your children were your secret sauce right your secret weapon mm-hmm. and yes at least assimilating into the community in, in burgundy but once you started making wines, what did uh, what did some of the other winemakers that you were hanging out with in Burgundy think?
0: Well, you know, I remember people asking me, oh, are you, you're going to make American style wines. And I go, well, one, I'd never made wine before. Two, I don't drink, you know, if you will, new world style wines. So pretty quickly, they the, the, and also they respected me. They knew I, I knew how to taste. I knew as much about as the vineyards, as many of them did, many of the nuances. And um I think they they wanted me to succeed. And um, you know, I write about it virtually. I mean, I can only mention I mean I mentioned a couple of times in the book, only a couple times were people trying to take advantage of me. Um but most of the time people were helping me. I mean, in the beginning I would call friends and say, look, I'm I need some grapes or I need some uh, just pressed uh, juice, so to speak. And I said, Do You know anybody that's selling? And they would call me. And, and, and with that, they'd say, Go see Mr. So and so, go see Madam So and so. And with that um, recommendation, I was able to get in um, and buy really, really fantastic quality product early on. And also, it was a time when there was a lot of product available. And I talk a lot about this in the book is that. You know, this this golden age of Burgundy has been the last 30 years. But uh, when I got there with Becky in those first few years, I mean, it was tough selling all this stuff. I mean, it, it, it wasn't the you know, it, it wasn't the quote unquote, the it girl like it is now. So it's it's a big difference. And my t- basically, Scott, my timing was right.
1: The timing was right. Uh, it doesn't hurt either. But, you know, I, I think when somebody asks you, are you going to make an American style wine? I think that would be very, very difficult to do in Burgundy given the terroir and the the literally the age of the vines there i mean tell me what that meant to you
0: well i think i think you're right one could make and and there was a time when people and there are still a handful of of winemakers who are trying to make overripe um juicy fruity fruit bombs and this was in in response to some people for for some of the wine critics who, you know, were giving high scores for those kinds of wines. Um, But my whole um, template of learning was tasting these wines. And as I was describing, you know, we have the terroir, or I I like to use the word for people to understand that word. We have the character of the vineyard. What is the character of this vineyard? And then on top of it, to make it even more complicated, we have the character or the geodesic dome of the growing season. So it makes it quite complex, but also makes it so interesting because no two years are ever the same. And that's what I always really enjoyed about it, that it was you had all these different things you could do. Um, I I, I don't know if I wrote this in the book, but maybe one of my first chapters or first, first renditions was, you know, it's interesting in Burgundy. We have all these rules we have to follow. Yet at the same time, there's so much creativity within those rules. It's a real paradox. Um, you know, we have to, you know, call the wine a certain way. You know, we we have to deal with the weather. We can't um, irrigate all those kinds of things. Yet it allows us, you know, to have this this palette. And if you will think of the colors of all these different uh, appellations, all these different terroirs. Uh, that are so different and so wonderful. So that complexity is also, I think, what what drew me to it, and, and and people recognize that they 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 appreciated my enthusiasm for it, and also my knowledge that I got it. You know, I basically I swallowed the the, the Kool Aid, and um, you know, I you know, in some cases I was I knew more about the vines than many winemakers.
1: Wow, so you at at one point you're you're working with Becky, and then you're starting this boutique winery, and and you're buying grapes or or juice, but then at some point, Alex, you go out and actually buy if I've got my facts right here, thirty acres of vineyards, <laughs> including one of the most prestigious vineyards in in all of Burgundy, the Grand Cru Bâtard Montrachet. How did that happen? <laughs>
0: Well, so I, I so buying the 30 acres, I started by buying some basic Bourgogne Pinot Noir and Bourgogne Chardonnay. Uh, and it was about three acres or so. And it was all of $100,000. So it was what I called my laboratory. It allowed me to set up a, um, uh, if you will, a winery, what I called grape company, um, grape co farming company, to figure out. You know, how how does this work? What are the numbers like? Um, and also have the actual tax and and fiscal and practical structure of having a, farm, a farming company. And I did that. I had that for a couple of years. Um, and then, in for example, in 07, I was able to buy the Pulini and the Chassagne, the two, you know, two wonderfully high end. Of chardonnays and over the years every couple years added to that Um, and the batard came in 2011 um and you know people and and the deal flow I like to say the ability to buy more of these grapes uh, buy more of these these vineyards came because people saw we were doing the right thing in the vineyards we were farming these things organically or we would call bio biodynamically and um you know taking vineyards that had been under, if you will, valued or under farmed and doing the right thing. And that was then reflected in the grapes and then in the wine we made. It, it, it was very simple. So my whole attitude was, you know, get to make the best possible grapes possible, grow the best possible grapes I can. And then from that, it's pretty easy to make good wine. Just don't mess it up. The grapes are 80 percent of it, no, no matter what. I always say that.
1: Well, for our listeners who may not understand sort of the value of a Grand Cru vineyard, there's like, correct me if I'm wrong, Alex, but in my mind, I always think that there's sort of these four levels of uh, classification, for lack of a better word, of the vineyards in Burgundy. You've got the Burgon and then the Village and then the Premier Cru and then, of course, the Grand Cru. And there's not a lot of Grand Cru vineyards yeah. in Burgundy. So for an American to own one, yeah, again, you know, I, I think that's a pretty cool thing.
0: <laughs> thank you it, it was it was a half it was about a half an acre um just about a half an acre and we made around know, 900 bottles a year maximum somewhere two and a half, three well sometimes three and a half yes yeah, three yes yeah, three and a half was the, barrels, about 900, 850 bottles where was the maximum we would make in any year. Um, and and as I say in the book, it's not as if I'm getting rich off of 850 bottles. Um, but what it did, and this is one of the paradoxes, because I had grand crew, the image I had was that uh, of the, of the domain was much more, it was much more gravitas with it. Um, People took me more seriously. I mean, I didn't do anything different. Um, having that vineyard um, from before and after that vineyard, but the perception in the marketplace totally changed the perception of my domain, um, which I think is perverse, but, you know, it's human nature. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I'm always the proudest. And I think, you know, since you know my wines for years, I made basic Pinot Noir and Chardonnay that people go, this is amazing stuff. No one does this. Well, I, I was an overachiever with that. Um, but you don't get, but you, t- people, you know, you don't, people don't get people asking you for your autograph with Borgogna. They want the, you know, they, they, they want you to have a you know, number one record, so to speak, even though, um, you know, day in, day out, you know, these are the wines we drink, these little wines, because we, as I joke and people, go, you don't. Drink ground crew every night. I can't afford ground crew. I got to sell the bottles.
1: <laughs> so nine hundred bottles of of 850, 900 bottles yep. of the Grand crew. I have two left. Can I sell them back to you? <laughs> Not a chance. <laughs> I am keeping those. You can sell them back to me at what at what you know at what I
0: sold the, the retailer for. Not I don't pay.
1: Yeah, I <laughs> ch- I am, am going to save those for. You know what? I'm going to save them for when you come visit me. That'd be lovely. I'd love to drink them with you. Absolutely. (laughs) So you carved this amazing path through Burgundy. I'm just curious. Do you have any advice for uh, other people who you know kind of have this romantic notion that they want to get into winemaking?
0: You know, the best advice I got early on was from a um, a retailer in New York, and he said, "Alex, I'm sure. I'm convinced. I know you're going to make good wine." The, that's not going to be the hard part. The hard part is selling the darn stuff. Um, you know, there's so many brands out there, um, and especially something that is a highly, if you will, complex, uh, multiple vineyards, multiple ownership, small quantities. It is is a is a very difficult product to market because you because there's it's such a, a fragmented market. And there's no economies, you can't ramp Burgundy up. Um, you know, I tell young people you know, who want to come in, come into business, especially in France, um, you know, I would not go to Burgundy. Um, maybe down or further south in the Macine, where you can get some some acreage. Um, it's still relatively inexpensive. You can make delicious um, Chardonnays there. Um, uh, uh, otherwise, go to the Loire and, and, and Cabernet Franc and and, Cabernet and um, Sauvignon Blanc, where, again, you can get some acreage. Um, I think it's hard to people understand, my, you know, Scott, people would always say, you know, take me to your chateau. I'm like, go oh, Chateau schmo. I mean, I have a house up in the country, and my 30 acres are 40 are comprised of 45 separate parcels over a 15 to 20 mile distance and people kind of eyes glazed over and go, what do you mean and i said well this is burgundy it is all the and, and my domain was very typical of most domains, I'm highly fragmented, fragmented, small pieces here and there, some close to one another, but you know, different different plants, you got to harvest at a different time. And so you, you never can basically say, oh, oh, here's my 50 acres and I can farm it. And with one guy with a tractor, he can get the spraying done and all in one day. I was lucky to get the 30 acres sprayed in two days because of the distances involved. So, you know, these are the practical, um, these are the t- practical challenges of farming in Burgundy. Um, and I you, 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 it's not for the faint of heart. And you've got to have a lot of money now, a lot of money.
1: Well, I've been stuck behind some of those tractors on the road. And I can tell you, driving through Burgundy could be maddening, particularly oh, at
0: harvest. Oh, you know, and and everybody has their own tractor. Everybody has their own set of equipment. Um, you know, you 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 have all this capital expenditure for your press and your tanks, uh, which you store the wine in, and all that equipment. Not to mention the farming equipment, and you actually use the farming equipment probably more than you do the other stuff because you know your winery equipment you're using, you know, two three weeks a year, and then it sits there, and so. so- All this adds and and, and you're making that wine with you're not making a lot of wine with the same amount of same, you know, several hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment. So this is why, you know, the the fundamentals of burgundy are expensive. Um, It's just small. It's boutique. I mean, it's a boutique. These are mostly boutique operations.
1: You know, you're talking about 45 different parcels. You're talking about days, you know, different days of of harvesting or or even maintaining the vineyards, this all sounds fairly intimidating to the uninitiated. Uh, what Do you have any advice for some of you who might be a little intimidated by by wine or trying to stick their toe into the wine barrel, so to speak?
0: Yeah, I would say the first thing you have to do is you have to work a couple harvests for, for somebody. And, and that means picking grapes, uh, working in, in the winery, I mean, everyone thinks it's all this, um, it's all glamour. I mean, I think I wrote I wrote in the book my my first harvest when I was in the wine school at, at Patrice Rion's. I was in virtually all day long for two or three weeks, you know, b- mucking the, the in, into the wagon the, the 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 grape stems. That was my job, and then afterwards I could come in and clean the floor and maybe do a pump over. Um, it's a lot of physical work um, and it's great fun because you're making, what I love is I love to make something. You're actually manufacturing something. And that's probably what was always the most fascinating piece for me is that you, you know, you start in the vines and then nine months later, well actually you start in, in December pruning for the next year and then you have the grapes and then another, you know, 18 months later, it's, you know, that that wine is in bottle, so it's almost a three-year period from when you t- start working in the vines, and that product is actually on a shelf in Washington D.C. And that process I love, um, but you have to be super patient. And as I say, you know, you that's that's just one harvest. You're going to have two harvests by the time you get that wine paid for. So you got to have a lot of cash or good bank lines of credit with the bank to pay the bills.
1: Yeah. Speaking of those <laughs> wines, though, on on the, the shelves, particularly in Washington, D.C., uh, and I don't mean to make you blush, but I will say that in the day when I would go into that shop or other shops and I would see a label that said Alex Campbell on it, I knew it was going to be good, regardless Thanks. of whether it was, but, you but- know, Burgon or Grand Cru. So hats <laughs> off
0: that's the thing i'm most proud of is that i never made a stinker um uh, you know you, it's hard i mean i look at you know and i hate i hate the scores and that whole system but i look back occasionally or people have asked me and i go i've had consistent scores you know for for 25 years from day 1 my scores were good um and that that and and and, and i'll pull out old bottles now and people go wow that's So fantastic! I love it, you know. And I, and that, you know, winemakers, we would love to. We'd rather. We we would give it away if we could, because that's all we want to do. We want to please people. We're we're people pleasers. This is a product that's supposed to give pleasure. You you have to fundamentally like doing that, and if you do, you're going to be fine with it. Oh, mission um, accomplished! Thank you, my friend. You. Very, always I, pleased me. Thank you. It's very sweet. I appreciate it.
1: So I, I want to take a little bit of a of a left turn here, and I want to talk a little bit about Diane. It's uh, mm-hmm. such a big part of your life. And now, of course, is the inspiration of the Diana D. Williams Freestyle mm-hmm. Fund. Can we just touch a little bit about um, Diana's life and mm-hmm. sort of, I'm not sure how to phrase this, Alex, right. but her life and her legacy and yeah what happened? So I met Diane. Diane is, is my second
0: wife, second marriage and um, we met in September 2002 about 21 years ago and she had as a kid um, grown up in Killington, Vermont and um, wanted to and was very competitive with her brothers and became a great skier and um, they had a freestyle program there. And she became a fantastic free scholar, um, one of the tops top in the world. And this was basically when they used to call it hot dog. So it was a combination of aerials, moguls, and they used to have ballet. And she did this in the late seventies, early eighties. She blew out her knee. Basically they all did the proverbial, the, the, in quotes is, oh, I blew my knee out. Had multiple operations, finally just couldn't ski anymore. Um, and she became a coach. And then for 10 years from 1988 to nine to 2008, she was the head of the Killington mountain school and she produced multiple world champions and Olympic gold medal, Olympic medal winners. And then from 98 to 2002, um, she was on the Olympic team at Salt Lake as, as one of the coaches. And so she were quote unquote retired in 2002 after the Olympics but in her off season, she would take bicycle trips through France because she sp- spoke beautiful, beautiful French. And her company came through. I, I did a bunch of tours and she really had not not much experience with um, Burgundy. Hers was more in Bordeaux. But she brought a group through and she wanted to have a, then a, an informational interview because she wanted to go to the wine marketing school. And that's how we met. And then. we got married in 2007, and she created this fabulous bespoke travel company called Hidden France, taking people to the wine regions of France, the Piedmonté, and then Porto. And then in March 2018, um, we found out she had stage four colon cancer that had spread to her liver, Um, no cancer in her family. And she passed about 27 months later in June 20, right in the middle of COVID. Um, and we were out West. We were in Jackson. She'd been getting treatments down at Huntsman and Salt Lake and also at Dijon. Um, and we'd gone to other cancer centers. And it was um, it was all the same treatment. It was just it was unfortunately it was I don't say run of the mill um, cancer, but it was it had been it was caught way, way too late quite frankly. And um, so I set up this, this foundation for her. And we are now giving out um, uh, scholarships to kids in, in the high school programs throughout the country. And last year, we gave some to Olivia uh, Giaco, who was sixth at Beijing. And the idea is trying to support these kids so they can go to Some of these um, um, international and national, international competitions um, that they normally wouldn't have the money to do for, because this is a very expensive sport, just like trying to play golf. I mean, it's a it's you you have to have um, some means to do it. And Diana's family did not have the means. And so she couldn't go to that next level, um, though she was very close to being, you know, tops in the nation and the world. So that's the legacy of it. And, you know, trying to, she would say, help my kids. And so that's the idea. And so we have a foundation now that um, all these kids who are, who are now in their 40s are on the board. And uh, some of them were world champions and, and medalists. And it's, it's quite satisfying. It's quite satisfying to do this, to give back like that.
1: Now, Alex, that is wonderful, and um, having moved now to a ski town myself, and my wife is is an oncologist, the this is very near and dear to my own heart, and I mm-hmm. cannot um, thank you enough, commend you enough, and a quick PSA, folks, if you're listening, if you're over the age of 40, and you even if you have no uh, family history of colon cancer, please, please, please just take a day and get a colonoscopy. It is so important and could save your life. And of course, if you do have a history, please get checked much earlier. That is my PSA. And I am so grateful, I, Alex, that you have uh, have this foundation.
0: No, thank you. And, and I agree 100%. I tell everybody um, you've got to do it. And it's the best 30 minutes sleep <laughs> of the year. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and you're Five pounds without, I did a lot of work. <laughs> right,
1: and you wake up hungry. <laughs>
0: you wake up hungry? You feel like a million bucks? And God, you, I always remember, I go, don't wake me up, this is so good, I don't sleep like this normally. <laughs> uh, you got to uh, laugh. On so a lighter boy.
1: note, you're now a grandfather, which I didn't know until I, I read the book. Uh, you know, any plans to take your grandchild to France? Do you miss France? What's, what's you the know, life? I
0: I, i'm going back again in, a, in in actually less than two weeks um i try to spend six weeks there in the fall um want to get there again in the spring but um you know I, I kept my home and it's kind of bittersweet when i go back i think i'm gonna actually sell it uh this year coming up we'll see i'm 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 debating, Scott. it's um uh i have mean, i said i've started over i'm a funny bird when i when i make my mind up and i turn the key inside to do something um i'm on to other projects and so you know i've and i've also got I didn't tell you this i've um i'm helping create a daycare center in our valley um uh, for 50 to 60 kids i actually donated my house and we moved it uh and the city of driggs got a, a million dollar grant so and the, and, the, and the, this is the, i called the house the old ranch brady bunch house And I worked with the city and the house mover. And so we got the house being put back together um, because our valley is growing very, very fast. And um, the kids, I call them the kids, but the, the adults in their 35 to 45 range who have kids. Um, need daycare because they're the workers and they're the young professionals that are supporting these ski resorts and um, and, the, and the two valleys, the Wyoming side and the Idaho side where I am. So um, that's my other project. So I've got plenty to do. People say, you know, what do you do when you retire? I don't like the R word. I go, I, I have P's, lots of projects, you know, as well as skiing a lot. So um, I'm, I'm enjoying my this new phase of my life.
1: Well, you should add M to your initial, you know, mountain house mover. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing that you're moving a house to provide daycare.
0: That is, hats off Thank you. And I've done a lot of real estate in my life, different projects. This is one of the, this might be the coolest one I've ever done. Um, and, you know, and it just, uh, I'll actually, I'll, I'll, I'll send you some photos. It'll blow your mind. It's pretty crazy.
1: <laughs> Great. I'll put them up on the website. That'd be lovely. Please, please do. Listen, before I let you go, I want to turn this back around to wine. One last question. Yes, sir. What is your ideal wine pairing? Sorry. I didn't mean to throw you a curveball like that. Say with the white
0: with a uh, My favorite probably always is is either my Pouligny Montrocher Les Enseigneurs, which is the kind of what I call the baby bâtard, or a Saint-Aubin Chien because both of these have wonderful, that lemon-lime quality and a flintiness with the Saint-Aubin lemon-lime with the Poulini. Um And then have that with something with like grilled fish, um, grilled scallops, something really, really simple. I mean that to me is is the perfect white match, uh, and for red, you know my two favorites are always either Volnay or Chambolle because um, I love the elegance, the smoothness of those two wines, and um, and, and then quite frankly, just with a perfectly roasted chicken, um, uh, it does. It, it, they ne- neither the wine nor the chicken. Will overwhelm one or the other. But but I, I say chicken, I mean something like a poulet de breast oh, or yeah. or oh, yeah. you know it's a, a real French chicken, not not the, the battery raised chickens, you know the, the, that 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 we get pawned off here in the United States. And if you say I miss something, you know, what I do miss honestly is the grocery store, um, and 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 the green grocers where we can just find fantastic. Fruits and vegetables that that, and that primarily are the ones that are just in season and really good fish and really great meats. But the chicken, the pork, things like that, the rabbits, um, I, I miss that. So I'm looking forward to getting back in, in two weeks and cooking again. And and I usually cook it. I mean, I love cooking at home and just, yeah. And now I'm getting excited now that I think about it. This was fun. <laughs> you got me fired up. Come, come, come on over. And we'll cook together.
1: <laughs> I'll tell you what, Alex, you got a deal. Don't sell the house yet. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll bring over the groceries. You open the wine. We'll cook together. We'll have a great time. Absolutely. All right. <laughs> well, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast, Alex, and it's been way too long since uh, we've caught up. Uh, but I really, again, want to tell everybody Climbing the Vines in Burgundy, How an American Came to Own a Legendary Vineyard in France by Alex Gamble. It is a great read. It is a wonderful book. And I highly recommend it. And Alex, it has just been such a great pleasure to have you on the podcast. Scott, so much fun to talk to you again. And, uh, let's stay
0: in touch. And if you ever want to uh, have uh, have a follow-up, let me know. I'm, I'm You know, I'm a talker. We, I can talk for hours.
1: Absolutely. I would love it. I would, I would but, but the next time it's got to be in person, and it's got to be over a bottle of wine. Absolutely. Okay, bye, friend. Take care. That'll do it for this episode of The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. Until the next time, remember, do good. Drink well.